Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together Bruce and I have written almost three dozen cookbooks, including the forthcoming and upcoming <laughs> Instant Air Fryer Bible that is out the first week of November of this year, just out. And we are actually going to be talking all about that book in the first part of this podcast. And if you want to watch me make air fried chicken wings, I'm going to be shooting a video of that later today. That will be up on our YouTube channel. I'll be posting it on Instagram. So check out my Instagram account, Bruce A. Weinstein, and you'll actually get to see me making chicken wings in the air fryer. And we've got our one minute cooking tip. Bruce has an interview about Sri Lankan food. Wow. Amazing. And we'll end as we always do with what's making us happy in food this week. So let's talk about our new book. I love to talk about our new book. It's <laughs> the Instant Air Fryer Bible. And we're really excited about this step-by-step recipes of using your instant brand air fryer, but the recipes work with any yeah. air fryer you want. Let's say that real carefully. The instant brand air fryers are the Vortex and the Omni, right? Yes. And those are the two models that they make. And there are basket style and toaster oven style. And I'd like to actually talk about that for a second, if we can. But their Vo- Vortex and Omni are made in these various styles. But even though the book is written for the instant brand air fryers, you can actually use the recipes in any uh, air fryer. We just happened to get instant brands behind us for this book. (laughs) We did. And so any drawer style or toaster oven style will work with every one of the recipes. So talk about that because before we get into some air frying tips, what are these two styles (laughs) of air fryers? Well, it's a little bit of a touchy subject because people that have the toaster oven style Mm. air fryer get very defensive. They do. They seem to think that everybody else has a basket style and they have the lone toaster oven (laughs) style. And nobody pays attention to them. And nobody pays attention to them. (laughs) And they tell them that you're wrong, you bought the wrong style. But there's they're both styles work. So a basket style, that means that there's a drawer you pull out at the bottom of the air fryer, and it could be anywhere from six inches deep to 10 inches deep, depending upon the make of the air fryer. And inside that drawer sits a basket or a tray at the bottom to lift the food up off the bottom of the the drawer. That allows air, the hot air to flow because the motor and the heating element is up on the top. Yeah. Basically, again, if you don't know what an air fryer is, well, you live under a rock. But if you don't (laughs) know what it is it's basically an incredibly intense scirocco hot air machine that blows hot air onto food and while it acts like a fryer that's actually a misnomer there's no frying going on well actually on a on a molecular level frying is sort of happening on the surface of the food it is because all food in an air fryer has to be coated in the at least the thinnest layer of fat of some kind imagine a blow dryer right you're blowing out your wet hair with a super hot blow dryer if you put that blow dryer onto a piece of chicken, that skin is going to start to bubble and crisp and actually fry. Well, the same thing is happening in that basket Correct. of an air fryer. Correct. That hot air is blowing almost like it's coming out of a superheated blow dryer. The difference is that in a deep fat fryer, there is an interchange between the moisture coming out of the food and oil going in into the coating and into the food. There's kind of an interchange between the two. And the difference is, and the reason air fryers have the reputation of being healthier is because there's no oil going 
into the food the way there is in a deep fat fryer. Yeah, you're not submerging your food in oil, just a right. lightest thin coating on it. So that's the drawer style. A toaster oven style is just what it sounds like. It looks like either a super large toaster oven or even yeah. a microwave. And then inside is either one tray that fits right in the middle or multiple racks that fit on different levels. And again, the heating element is on top, the fan is on top, and then the air blows around all the food that goes in there. The difference is just on the arrangement of the food and the way you access that food. You're right. And I would say that the other big difference that I would highlight is that I think toaster oven style air fryers by and large are not as portable as drawer style. People who have toaster oven style air fryers tend to keep them out on the counter because they are larger, bulkier machines like a toaster oven. A drawer style is the kind of thing that people pull out of cabinets by and large. Now, that's 100% the case, but I know that the big toaster oven style ones that we have are clunky. They, they my are. mother wouldn't be able to pull them out of a cabinet. And the other difference between them is that in general, the area inside, the cooking area in a drawer style is taller than the cooking area in most toaster oven styles. Yeah, I think styles. that's really important to say. Taller, it, not it's larger. It's taller. So you actually have sometimes more room inside a toaster oven style, yeah. but you have more flat surface area. So you could fit, let's say, more chicken breasts side by side on the tray than you can inside the drawer. But in the drawer, you could stack up more food. So if you're piling in French fries or you're piling in um, parsnips or even if you're piling in chicken wings or a whole chicken, you could fit that right. into a drawer where right. you probably can't fit that into a toaster style. And we should just say, this leads us out, we're going to talk about some air frying tips and tricks. And this is one of the first things that we always say in all of our recipes, and that is when you dump the food, even in a toaster style, but particularly in a basket style air fryer, when you dump the food in, you want to do it like you're pouring Legos out of a box or <laughs> like you're pouring, if you're as old as I am, Lincoln logs out of a box. Everything needs to kind of fall in there willy-nilly so there's space between things. It's yeah. rare that you pack things into an air fryer mm -hmm. because you want space. Let's say you're making parsnip fries, which are one of my favorite things. Parsnips cut into French fry shapes and air fried. I love parsnip fries. You kind of you pour them in there as if you're just pouring Lego into a box yeah. so that they're all a kilter and willy-nilly in every which way. And then you shake them and move them occasionally. Because that hot air has to reach every part, every exposed piece of food. Right. So even when you're piling in those parsnip fries, there will be certain parts of them that are touching others and being covered. So that's why you move them around and you shake them every five or 10 minutes to expose the uncooked parts and get those exposed to the hot I air. I saw a TikTok video. This is just, sorry, this is just on an aside. But I saw a TikTok video on parsnip fries a while back and they did it, you know, in that jump cut, fast motion kind of way. You know the whole way they do it. Mm -hmm. And they were they were layering the parsnip fries in a 
perfect bottom layer against each other and then at a 90 degree angle on top and then at a 90 degree angle and it was like these perfect layers of fries Stacking and i thought to wood. myself there is just no that didn't work i mean that looks great because you know there they are lining up in fast motion inside the air fryer but that didn't work i know it didn't work there's not enough airflow going on no. when they're touching like that no nope. it doesn't work nope. and i know that that's a faked video because i know enough about air fryers to know that there's got to be even space between between the little fries or between the chicken wings so that air is constantly moving and then you shake the basket or you rearrange the things so that air just keeps getting to every single part of whatever it is you're cooking. Every time I tell people we're working on yet another air fryer book and not even the instant air fryer bar, but working on one that comes out next year, um, they're always like, well, should I really, should I get an air fryer? And I'm always shocked that they don't already have one because it is the most convenient and versatile thing. I do everything in it. Yeah, it is really the easiest way to reheat leftovers. We make a lot of leftovers in them. We've probably told you this before on this podcast, but they are the best for rotisserie chickens from the supermarket because the next day when the chicken is cold from the refrigerator, you can pop it into the air fryer. It gets wonderfully crunchy, beautifully done, what, 350, about, what, two, three, four Yeah, minutes. it's so fast. We had pizza the other night, and we had leftover pizza, and I wanted to heat it up for lunch. And I had two air fryers going up, but my three slices in my air fryer, Mark's three slices, another air fryer, and it was about three minutes is all it took. And I put it in, actually, I had 400 just so it would go super fast, but I had to watch it to make sure it didn't burn. And within three or four minutes, it was sizzling. It was hot. So f skip the microwave because that's not going to get it crispy. Oh, no, no. Microwave and is just going to make it mushy. If you tried to reheat that pizza in your oven, in three minutes, your oven would not even <laughs> have been warm yet. And we were eating scalding hot pizza. Yeah, it's really an, a great tool for reheating all kinds of leftovers. Even if you buy prepared foods from the store and you bring them home like fried chicken, let's say you buy it from the store, yum, or <laughs> you buy other food that could be crunchy from the store you can easily heat it up in the air fryer with no problems but there's this trick about hard boiled eggs that's kind of amazing it is so cool you don't have to bring water to a boil you just put a cold egg into a 250 degree air fryer 16 minutes then it comes out you drop it in cold water for a few minutes and it's done. They are the most perfect boiled eggs, and they're not boiled. They're they, air fried. They're air fried eggs, and they are like hard cooked eggs, but in fact, out of an air fryer. Now, let me just say before we get on to the next tip that if you hear some background noise, we have collies swirling around us right now as we're recording this. One of them was upstairs on the bed, and the other was down here with us. And now the one upstairs has come down, and so now, of course, they have to. They greet, have their reunion. They have to <laughs> greet each other and do all that they're doing. Right now, so sorry about the noise, but there it is. Okay, so here, here is another great tip, and this is something that I think is uh, uh, something that's not necessarily intuitive, and that is, remember Bruce said that the food cooks up on a cooking tray or a plate or a rack, usually a rack over a tray in the toaster oven style or a cooking tray or surface in the bottom of the basket, and of course, juices, quote unquote, <laughs> drop out of what is cooking. Sometimes it's rendered fat. Sometimes it's other things. With vegetables, it's more liquid matter. And it drops out. And of course, it collects below this rack. 
And I think a lot of people throw that stuff out. Automatically. Most people see that as the crap, the garbage, the detritus of <laughs> cooking. And it's I'm so old that I know that, that I still pronounce it detritus. I, I had to stop in my head and think about that. Which way am I going to pronounce it? In it? my day, it was detritus. Yeah. Now the preferred pronunciation is detritus. It drives me crazy. Go and on. the thing is, that is the basis of a delicious sauce. We have recipes where like we do shrimp and they're coated in olive oil and they cook in there. And yes, some of the olive oil drips off, some of the shrimp juices drip off. So then once the shrimp is out, I mix a little balsamic vinegar into those juices, pour it all over the shrimp, mm-hmm. and it makes an instant sauce. So mm-hmm. don't automatically discard it all. Yeah, I just wrote a recipe for the book, for the book that's out next year, not the upcoming book, but it was still warrants here in which you put a little bit of compound butter, that's flavored butter with herbs, on top of salmon during the last couple minutes of its cooking. And then you talked about, you know, removing the salmon fillets and whatever's on the bottom of the drawer or the tray, pouring that back Mm. over the salmon again, because that butter has melted. It's gone into the bottom. It's actually reduced a little bit Mm -hmm. in the hot air currents. And so it makes a kind of automatic sauce. It's really kind of amazing. And I think this is a, a kicker because I think that the air fryer advertising consortium that meets in apartment 5G on 44th Street, I think that they have done a disservice. And that is they always show air fryers absolutely overfilled with matter like you open the door and five million french fries pour out they explode out some magic like a jack-in-the-box and this is wrong no do not overfill your air fryer the pictures in those boxes are deceiving when they when you open the drawer the air the french fries the parsnips the steaks the chickens should not be loaded up to the top no despite what they make you think when you look at that picture. If you knocked all those french fries down, it would only go down to the bottom. They sort of lifted them all up and made it look like it's overfull. Or they made french fries elsewhere and just filled it for the picture. Yeah, that's probably what they did. So don't overfill your machine. Do not try and recreate that photo on the cover of your air fryer box. I mean, how many chicken wings do you think you can make in a standard six to eight quart air fryer? In my six quart air fryer, I can actually get three pounds of chicken wings. Now, the more chicken wings I have, the longer it's going to take because I have to toss it more often to make sure the ones on the bottom keep coming up to the top. So if I have one pound, maybe they'll cook in 20 minutes. If I have two pounds, it's probably 30 minutes of tossing and Three pounds can actually take as long as 40 minutes right. because there's more tossing to do. But I would never put more than three pounds in my six-quart drawer style. Okay, that's all we want to say about air fryers <laughs> for the moment. We've got much more to say about them. But let's move on to our, our next segment, our one-minute cooking tip. And yes, it's about an air fryer. Well, it's actually a really super fast recipe, I want to tell you. So next time you make baked potatoes, and I don't care how you make them, you made them in your oven, you made them in the toaster oven, or you even made them in the air fryer. I want you to make extra ones and cool them and wrap them in plastic, keep them in the refrigerator. They'll last about a week. And here's what you're going to do with them. You slice them into three quarter inch rounds. You spray them with olive oil And then you air fry them for 20 minutes at 400 degrees, turning once. And these are a single layer in the air fryer. Mm. You will have super crunchy Mm -hmm. potato slices that are basically like half inch to three quarter inch thick potato chips. Yes, these become super crunchy. They condense down a little bit and they become the perfect 
bed, for cream cheese and smoked salmon, mm. for tapenade, for all kinds of dips. You can get French onion dip and dip them into it. You can top them with sour cream and I don't know what, smoked trout. I mean, really, honestly, these rounds of potatoes are super crunchy and super delicious. All right, up next, Bruce's interview with Otama Carey, the author of Lanka Food. She owns a Sri Lankan restaurant in Australia, and Bruce is going to be talking to her from Australia. See, we have an international podcast here. We are going to be talking to Otama Carey from Australia about her new book, Lanka Food. Today is very exciting. I'm speaking with Otama Carey. She is the chef and owner of Lankan Filling Station, a Sri Lankan restaurant in East Sydney, Australia, and her new cookbook is called Lanka Food Serendipity and Spice. Welcome, Tama. Hi. Sri Lanka is a small country off the southeast coast of India, and I think a lot of people might be surprised to find that a small country like that would have a food culture that's truly its own. Can you describe Sri Lankan food for people who are just learning about it? I think that's part of the reason I wrote the book because the, there is not a short answer for that. Um, uh, one of the questions I always get asked is, what is Sri Lankan food? Um, closely followed by, is it just Indian? And, and that's, that's a tricky thing because, yes, in part, it's a lot. there's a lot of South Indian influences. I mean, when you look at the food of India itself, it's such a big country and regionally it changes. But, yes, the southern... Indian food has had a big influence on Sri Lankan food because a lot of Tamils migrated. But then, you know, it's a country that's had so many invaders. So there's been the Dutch, the Portuguese, the English. It was also a major port in the Spice Trail. So there's been a lot of Chinese merchants. There's a lot of Muslim. Um, so it's got it's got this amazing array of different cultures who've influenced their food. Well, your mom's family is Sri Lankan and clearly the food culture there had quite an impact on your palate. Can you talk about one of the first things you remember eating that in your mind is truly Sri Lankan? Growing up, we didn't eat Sri Lankan food every day, but, you know, it was part of our lives, bits and pieces. Papadums were, also, were always one of my first favourites as a child. I didn't really eat a lot of food, so papadums were my go-to. But I think the first Sri Lankan thing that I learned how to make, and that was always something I loved was a pole sambal. So it's one of their sambals, fresh coconut. It's made with lime juice, chili, paprika, moldy fish, which is a dried fish we use quite a lot. Um, and it's just this beautiful sambal. It's bright, it's spicy, and it's really good with everything. Well, let's talk about sambals since you brought that up. Um, you have a whole chapter on sambals in your book. What is a sambal and how important is this in a Sri Lankan meal? Um, so this is really interesting. Sambals, if you look at other parts of Asia, they spell it differently. Um, it's S-A-M-B-A-L. And mostly it's a term used to define generally a chili paste type thing. So sometimes with fish in it, usually oily, usually really fiery. When you go to Sri Lanka, they change things because we're Sri Lankan and we like to do that be a little bit different so we spell it differently it's s-a-m-b-o-l and it's a term there covers condiments also um often with chili but it covers a much wider range of dishes so 
you'll get stuff like pole sambal, which is fresh, really zesty, really bright, coconut-based. Sometimes it's really, really hot, sometimes not so hot. You'll also get dishes like sini sambal, which is the other, which is another one which is really popular, which is a caramelised onion, so you actually cook mm. it down. But sambals also cover what we would think of as a salad, almost so little like a cucumber dish that you'll get a side dish. And often a Sri Lankan, well, usually a Sri Lankan meal, like a proper rice and curry meal, will be made up of a whole range of dishes, like balancing flavours and textures. And so there'll always be a couple of sambals and often they're quite fiery. Tammy, you worked as a chef cooking French food and Japanese, Chinese, even Italian. So what differences have you encountered as a chef presenting your own culinary heritage at your restaurant? That's been something that I've found really, really interesting for me. You know, there's a lot of things. I've never cooked Sri Lankan professionally before this. I mean, I've cooked for a really long time. I never actually really cooked that much Sri Lankan food. I've eaten a lot, but you know, it was what my mum cooked or what my family cooked. It was not something that I kind of got too involved in. And when I did, it was me just asking my mum for recipes. I wasn't cooking it from knowledge, like from, you know, my own my own palate. So for me, that was personally, that was really interesting, trying to figure out my way into learning it for myself, which I think interestingly was through looking at all the curry powders. That was really good for me. But in terms of how people perceive it, I've had more questions about authenticity since I've been doing this than I ever have ever in any other restaurant I've worked in, which is fascinating because it's actually more authentic than anything I've ever done if you look at it that way, which is ridiculous anyway. That is interesting. Most people don't go to a French restaurant and think about whether it's authentic, but the more exotic to their palate the food gets, the more authentic they want to know it is. And I think it's also because up until recently, it's not a Sri Lankan food and cuisine and it hasn't been that mainstream. So the people who do know about it can be quite protective of it. And, you know, we get I get comments in the restaurant, everything from... It's so authentic. It's like my mum used to make to you're just making food, dumbing it down for white people. And like that ranges, you know. So it's very, it's very something that's about perception. And some people think if it doesn't taste like this mum's cooking, then it's clearly not Sri Lankan. And then other people, like other Sri Lankans, go, this is amazing what you're doing with our food. So what can you do? You write in the book about spices and curry powders a lot. They're very important in Sri Lankan cuisine, but can you talk about how does curry from Sri Lanka differ from curry in India? So I think that the actual term curry is very generic. It doesn't, you know, the amount of flavors and textures and colors that you can say is a curry is just wild. Like, you know, if you look at a Japanese curry, you look at a Thai curry, you look at it, Indian curry from South India, from North India, from middle of India, from you look at a Sinhalese curry and you look at a Tamil curry, you know, they're all dishes. Basically, they've got spice in them. It's a casserole with spices or a stew with spices. So I think that's tricky in itself to define. But Sri Lankan curries, you know, often start with a curry powder more more often than a curry paste. And then it's the base of a lot of curries in Sri Lanka uh, onion, chili, garlic, ginger, and curry leaves. Um, and then from there, it's just about balancing it and it's about ratios. Um, and that's how you get the curry. Do you have a signature curry that you've developed that you serve in the restaurant? A lot of the stuff in the restaurant, I mean, some of it's quite traditional. 
or it's from recipes that I've learned while I've been there. My favourite at the moment, which I've been talking about a lot, is the cashew curry, which I think is really interesting because it highlights a lot of really beautiful things about Sri Lankan food, which is, you know, there is a lot of vegetable dishes. You, know, you can really happily be a vegetarian there. There's The amount of vegetable curries is just mind-blowing. Um, cashews in particular are native to Sri Lanka. And the cashews that they use, they're big and beautiful and fresh and you can, you know, you buy fresh cashews everywhere. Um, it's also, it is a dish which is just cashews, so it's quite rich. Um, I cooked it for a class the other day and we were talking about, you know, when you don't miss having meat for those people who are real meat eaters. And I think the cashew curry really stands up to that um, because it's so, I mean, cashews are so fatty as well and there's, I think, you know, meat often is just about having that fat. So I think it's really interesting in that way. And it's also a really delicious curry. Also, it doesn't have a lot of chilli in it, which I think, you know, people always think, or there's often the preconception that it's all really spicy and a lot of it really is. But then there's also the stuff that you balance and the cashew curry is really nice, rich, gentle, balancing curry. You just mentioned how many vegetable curries there are in Sri Lankan cuisine and much of your book, Lankan Food, is vegetarian. You have a lot of recipes for vegetable curries. There was a few chicken, a few fish curries, but there's a recipe in your book called Beef S'more, and it's one of the few beef recipes you have. It calls for brisket, a very popular cut of beef here in the U.S., but yours is not smoked. It's not braised with tomatoes, which are kind of the two big ways yeah. people in the U.S. cook it. Tell me about this dish and your history with it. So this dish is really interesting, and it was something I um, I learned from my nan, and I hadn't I, I I had never eaten it over there until, and I didn't know about it. Um, so traditionally, they <clears throat> in the book I use brisket because I love the cut. I think it's a really beautiful, fatty, delicious cut of beef um traditionally it's more they use chuck or top side so not as not as fatty um but so this is a particular burger dish so burger they're my you know the dutch sri lankans or the european sri lankans um and their food is often can often be a bit richer and that's kind of my family history of the burgers so it's basically if you look at it it's a pot roast that has been sri lankified really so it's got Lime pickle, which is a really Sri Lankan thing that we do where you, um, it's a bit like preserving lemons, but it's a lime version where you sun dry the limes and you actually add vinegar as well. But like with preserved lemons, you just use the, the skin and it's really tangy. It often gets made into a sambal. Um, and interestingly, if you look at Malaysia as well, they've got a version of beef small, which when you look at the history is, again, that, European influence, but their beef s'more is really different to the Sri Lankan beef s'more. Let's talk about pan rolls. The recipe in your book offers vegetable or beef fillings, but these are sort of dumplings, but it's not a standard dumpling dough. So can you talk about pan rolls, what they are and how you make them? So this is another interesting dish. Um, again, it is, from what I can, like I've done a lot of research on it and there's no definitive answer. From what I've gathered, pretty much it's the idea of a spring roll. So you've got a spicy filling, you've got a wrapping, and then it gets crumbed and deep fried. So I don't know, in Australia we've got something called a chico roll, 
which you buy at daggy fish and chip shops or service stations. And it's, again, it's what Australia has done to a spring roll. And I think pan roll is what Sri Lankans did to a spring roll. And interestingly enough, they're also called Chinese roll sets. So, you know, it's not too far from the thing, but it's this beautiful, you get this really spicy filling. You make what is essentially a crepe and that's what you roll the filling in and then it gets crumbed and deep fried. So when you eat it, it's like this really beautiful, crispy, crisp interior. And then there's this soft, gentle pancakey thing and then the fiery filling and they're really good. And it's deep fried. What more do you want? Until reading your book, I hadn't heard of hoppers. So explain what they are and offer me some advice on getting it right. So hoppers are the reason Lincoln Filling Station exists. When you're talking about the Sri Lankan foods that I remember most. I remember the first time I actually ate a hopper in Sri Lanka and I couldn't believe it. They're these beautiful bowl-shaped fermented rice flour pancakes. They've got really crispy edges, a soft doughy middle, and the whole idea about hoppers is they're kind of what you eat curries and sambols with. You know, it's about tearing, scooping and dipping. You don't fill them up even though they look like a bowl. You get egg ones as well, um, which are exactly the same. It's just a soft-cooked egg in the middle. They're really good for breakfast, just with a sambol. You'll have like hopper stalls on the side of the street, which will just sell hoppers and maybe a sambol or two. And you just sit there and they keep bringing you hoppers and you can just keep eating them. You know, my love of hoppers is why Lankin Filling Station exists, because I needed to eat more hoppers and no one would make them for me. I had to open a restaurant. So I'm going to follow the recipe in your book. But what advice can you give me as I'm working through it so that I don't screw it up? Okay, so... Seemingly simple, but quite tricky. You ferment the batter overnight, which is what you do in Sri Lanka. So the recipe in the book calls for two different types of rice flour. The idea being that you need a bit of coarse rice flour for structure, but then you need a bit of fine rice flour because if you use too much coarse rice flour, then texturally they're quite wrong. And it's just about getting the fermentation right. You want it to be bubbly and a little bit fluffy. You do need a hopper pan. It's not something you can cheat with. They're these beautiful wok-shaped pans that you can get them quite small or you can get them quite big. Try and find a small one if you can. And I would traditionally, they're aluminium and you need to season them like you would a wok. They can be quite temperamental. I would, we at the restaurant use non-stick ones after having had a few problems (laughs) in our past. Um, But yeah, just practice trial and error it's about the heat and it's about the fermentation can you make sri lankan food without coconut is that possible no flat out no (laughs) so coconut plays a huge huge part in sri lankan cuisine yeah and not just in the food but in everything you know you build houses with it you make mattresses you make brooms you light fires the coconut palm is pretty essential to just general life. The dessert chapter in Lanka Food offers up some recipes that I think many listeners in the U.S. will have never tried, including faluda. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. It looks in the photo in the book like a magical ice cream float filled with tapioca, rose syrup, and rice noodles. Is that something you dreamed up, or is it your ingenious take on a classic (laughs) Sri Lankan sweet? No, it is. That's definitely not something I made up. It is my take on it, though. Um, Baluda, it's an interesting dish. It originated from Persia and kind of trickled down through Asia. Um, In Sri Lanka, you find it in the Tamil shops. For years, my mum talked about it. She said, you know, after school, it was 
her favourite treat was getting a faluda and she would describe it to me saying rose rose syrup and milk and milkshake and I just thought it sounded hideous. Couldn't believe it. But then recently on a trip there just before I opened the restaurant, I was determined to find the best faluda I could. So I went hunting. I asked everyone who makes the best faluda. It was a really hot, hot day. Um, we'd been stuck in Colombo traffic, which is hideous. I was searching for people's suppliers and having not a very good day. Found this place that was meant to make the best faludas, and it is a magical milkshake, basically. It's the rose syrup. The essential ingredient is it in it is basil seed, um, which are also known as faluda. So that's where the name comes from. And interestingly, you know, that thing about being in Asia when you're really hot and you need some sugar, but the basil seeds, the properties of basil seeds, are they quite cooling to the body as well? So... When you look at it, it really makes sense because it cools you down, it gives you that sugar hit, and then the basil seeds actually work to cool your body down properly, and it's pretty. Oh, Tamakari, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Your book, Lanka Food, Serendipity and Spice, people can order it online no matter where they live, and if they're anywhere near your part of the world, they need to come in and see you at the Lankan Filling Station. (laughs) Hey, thanks for spending time with us this week. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I have always wanted to go to Sri Lanka. It's just been a thing with me. I, I don't. I, it's just been this. Start saving your miles. I know. <laughs> I, Bruce and I talk about where we want to go and kind of dream trips. And you know, oh, where's the? I, I, I really don't like the words bucket list. But where are the dream trips? Because bucket sounds so. I don't know. What, what about bouquet list? Like yeah. hyacinth. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we make our bouquet lists, and um, <laughs> I always put Sri Lanka on that list because I always think it must be this foodie paradise to go to, and maybe this will just push us to actually get ourselves to Sri Lanka soon enough. All right, our final segment of the podcast, as is traditional, what's making us happy in food this week? For me, it's candied pine nuts. Oh, and I, I know where this is coming from. And I love candied nuts, and I had never had candied pine nuts. And we had a dinner party last night, and I made some coconut panna cotta for dessert. But I wanted to do something to it. I wanted to drizzle it with something or pour something on it. And I thought about all the jams and jellies I made that could be interesting. And then I thought, nope, I want something crunchy. And I went to my pantry and the only nuts I had were pine nuts. So I tossed them into a skillet with a little powdered sugar. And it took about seven minutes and that powdered sugar caramelized and each nut was coated. It was almost like a brittle that Mm. I then broke up. Mm. And I poured this candied pine nut topping on top of each bowl of panna cotta. And it was fabulous. It was really crazy. It was so crunchy and so unexpected, and it was pine nuts. It was really delicious. And what's making me happy in food this week happened at that dinner party last <laughs> night. It was Shan Bing. And please do not criticize my Chinese pronunciation, <laughs> but these are flat disc-like, sometimes they're in half moons, but more traditionally flat disc-like meat pies. They're Sichuanese, right? Mm, they're Sichuan street food, yeah, meat and pies. They are 
so delicious. And Bruce has been perfecting and perfecting and perfecting his recipe for Jean Bing. Please, again, forgive me. These Sichuan street food meat pies, they were so delicious. I doused them in Bruce's homemade chili oil. If you want to know how to make that chili oil, go out to our YouTube channel, Cooking with Bruce and Mark, and look at Bruce's video of how to make the aromatic, what is it, 23 spice chili oil? I lose count. There are so many spices in it, I lose count. Some insane amount of spices. I doused them in that chili oil oil ugh, they were so crunchy and delicious they irresistible i had way too many of them last night okay so that's our podcast for this week thanks for joining us thanks for letting us bang on as the brits say about the instant air for our bible that's out at the first first week or so of november we are super excited about that book you should check it out anywhere that you get books and we are so excited to share our love of air fryers and please go to our facebook group cooking with bruce and mark join the conversation i'll post all of our videos there i'll post recipes and pictures and please subscribe so you don't miss a single episode and we'll be back for another one next week on cooking with bruce and mark